This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Tennessee. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the cold, you know so well, sisters speak out. It's Amelia. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast. This is season three. And this week we are back in Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, to be precise. And I'm here talking to Cherie Scott, who is the CEO and founder of an organization called Sister Reach. If you're keeping up with season three, I shared an episode from Memphis a few weeks ago um, with Jasmine Tasaki, the founder and director of We Care Tennessee. And Jasmine actually mentioned Sharice because Jasmine was receiving an award from Sharice and Sister Reach. Uh, earlier in the summer. So it was really exciting to me to find out that information. And I really love when in the scope of, you know, two interviews in a city or state, we get to meet two members of the same community, because I think it's always really important to emphasize that all of this work happens in communities with communities. And it's exciting when we can see two projects that, you know, touch each other in so many different ways and use a lot of the same frameworks to serve different populations, but obviously have the utmost respect and care for each other. So this week in Memphis, we're going to talk about reproductive justice and Sister Reach's work as the first and only reproductive justice organization in Tennessee. Before we get to that, I just want to give a plug for the giveaway we have going on throughout season three. If you rate and review the podcast on iTunes, you will be automatically entered to win a 50 Feminist States uh, swag pack, party pack, super cool bunch of stuff. I really haven't figured out the name for this, but it includes a 50 Feminist States tote bag, a fanny pack, notepads and pens left over from the last Kickstarter campaign, as well as a whole bunch of stickers and even your very own 50 Feminist States car magnet. So lots of goodies in there. All you have to do is rate and review the podcast on iTunes and then take a screenshot and drop us a quick note, either uh, Instagram DMs or through email, amelia at 50feministstates.com. So as I already mentioned, this week I'm talking to Sharice Scott of Sister Reach. Sharice is an amazing storyteller, so I really want to let her share her story and the story of the organization in her own words. Um, we're going to talk about crisis pregnancy centers. We're going to talk about reproductive justice versus reproductive rights and other um, reproductive frameworks, as well as talking about Memphis uh, as a city and its politics and an experience that Sharice had over the summer being silenced by the Tennessee Senate Judiciary Committee. So, so many powerful stories in this episode. You're definitely going to want to listen all the way through. For now, let's start with Sharice introducing herself and talking a little bit about the story that led her to reproductive justice work. Hi, my name is Sharice Scott, and I am the CEO and founder of Sister Reach, and we are located in Memphis, Tennessee. I came to this work as a woman who was in need of a safe abortion. I was still living in Chicago at the time and had just recently finished a national tour playing Mahalia Jackson. Um, I realized that I was pregnant while I was on tour and um, I had attempted to have an abortion while I was on tour, but I was afraid to do it by myself. Um, when I got back to Chicago, I set an appointment by looking in the yellow pages and there was 
an ad that said, uh, need an abortion, call us. And so I did. I set an appointment, took off of work that day, went downtown Chicago to this office building, which was weird, but I was like, okay. And when I got to their office, it just looked more like a lawyer's office. It didn't necessarily look like, you know, a medical office, but I didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't know. I had never had an abortion before. I didn't know what the places looked like. Right. And I was greeted by an older white woman who um, uh, asked me to come into a room and to sit down. And she, you know, then gave me like a series of questions and uh, questions like, you know, um, are you on public aid? Uh, and I was like, no, you know, I, you know, I had I not only had just come off tour, but I was on a leave of absence from uh, from my job that let me go on tour. And uh, I was working as a paralegal there for a pretty uh, well-known firm at the time. Uh, and I was like, no, I'm not on, you know, I'm not on food stamps. And she was like, oh, OK, well, um, I mean, do you use public aid for health care or whatever? I was like, no, I've got health care. You know, and uh, it was just weird, just very weird questioning. But, you know, she asked these, you know, really personal questions, I thought. You know, at the time, they didn't fall on me as as stereotypical as they do today. Um, But I was like, okay. Um, And so, you know, she talked about the procedure, um, that it was a dangerous procedure, that, um, you know, I, I, you know, had I considered adoption and I was like, no, I hadn't considered adoption. Um, that that's not necessarily, you know, what, what was my belief if I was going to carry a a pregnancy to term, then I was going to raise that kid. Um, and then she also asked about the father and those types of things. And I was like, well, you know, that's why I'm here because, you know, we've decided that this isn't the best idea, you know, because it's not a good idea for him. And, you know, I don't want to raise a kid alone. And so I'm trying to not have this, uh, I'm going to have an abortion. And so then she was like, well, I, you know, I just want you to kind of know what you're getting yourself into. She pulled out these videos for me to watch. Um, a few of them had like animations of abortion procedures. Um, and these animations were, you know, like full grown babies. And, you know, in the animation, the baby's head is being crushed as it's being taken out of the mother's womb and all of these types of things. It was like, you know, like, hmm. And if then if that wasn't kind of weird enough and, gruesome enough looking then she you know showed me live footage of what was you know supposed to be you know some type of an abortion procedure and um you know it was really scary actually um so she was like you know you've seen these things you know like what do you think about having an abortion now I was like well I mean that that looks horrible you know but I still need to have this abortion you know and uh and so she was like, well, you know, I just I really would like for you to really cons- reconsider. And I was like, look, I came to have an abortion. Can I have it or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I think when she got frustrated and realized that what she had, you know, maybe her first line of defense to dissuade me didn't work. Um, she called her colleague in the room, which happened to be uh, a black woman who looked like she was in her 30s. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and she sat down with me and tried to appeal to me, I guess, as another black woman mm-hmm. and said that she and her husband had considered having an abortion and because they were pregnant while she was in college and they decided that they just want to go ahead and have the baby, thought the baby was a blessing, and you know, and that though they didn't think the things would work out, everything worked out for them. And they were, you know, they were married to this day and all these types of things. And so I felt like since she was kind of trying to appeal to me as a black woman, I just got very black woman with her. And I was like, sis, you know, my man doesn't want this baby. 
Okay. And our relationship is, he basically doesn't really want me. And so I'm not about to bring this baby into the world. I don't have a situation where I'm in college. I don't have a, a husband, you know, um, I have a situation where if I bring this baby into the world, I'm going to raise it. I have to raise this baby by myself. And I'm not interested in bringing that type of harm or shame or, you know, or, or heartbreak, you know, to my kid. I understand. I understand. I just really think that you ought to rethink it. I was like, look, because <laughs> by this time, I was about two hours into my visit or so. I'm like, is this an abortion clinic or not? You know, I appreciate all of this, the, these pet boxes and things. That's cool. You know, but this is not why I'm here. I came to have an abortion. If I, you know, where are we? Is this an abortion clinic? And she's like, well, no, this is an abortion clinic. I was like, ugh, because I took off work that day. And so I'm like, okay, um, you know, well, we can, you know, let me just see if you could just have a seat and, you know, and I'll just, we'll, you know, we'll be with you in just a moment. And so they came and they got me. I guess they realized they weren't going to be able to dissuade me. They figured out maybe the next thing. So they said, well, you know, we want to send you for you to get the ultrasound that you need about this abortion. Um, and so they, you know, um, we worked out an, uh, a next appointment date that I could, could, you know, make it. I didn't have a car at the time, so I had to, you know, use someone's car because I thought I was actually about to have a procedure. I didn't really know much about it at the time. Um, I borrowed someone's car. It was on the north side of Chicago, which is pretty far from where I live, which was the south side of Chicago. And um, when I got there, you know, there was like, it was a clinic. It looked like a clinic this time. Um, and, you know, when I got in there, I mean, there were wall-to-wall women, you know, um, I was asked to come into a room and to, you know, unrobe from my you know, waist down. And a woman came in and did an ultrasound. She was a black woman uh, who seemed like she looked like she was a nurse. And, um, you know, she turned the ultrasound screen around to me. And I, you know, I didn't really want to see, you know, what was on the screen. But she was like, look, if you have an abortion, you're going to you're going to perforate your uterus and you won't be able to have any more children. And I was like, what? You know, and really for me, that was that was it. Right. That I wanted to be a mom and um, I wasn't going to be able to be a mother. And so I was like, OK, so can I go ahead and have this abortion? Well, we don't do abortions here, but you got your ultrasound. You can have some birth control pills here. You know, we don't do abortions. I'm like, damn. It's the second place I'm coming to, and it's not an abortion clinic. You know what I'm saying? So I was so pissed off by then, you know. Um, I was so pissed off by then. And so I was just like, okay, fine. So, I, you know, I get in the car, and I just remember just being dazed. And I drove back home dazed. Like, like what am I going to do? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what is this going to look like? And I decided, I made a decision to go ahead and go through with the pregnancy. And uh, I gave um, my child's father back his money, you know, minus what I needed for those visits, for the visits to the doctor. And um, and uh, and it's been kind of that way since from then to now, you know, and my baby hasn't had access to his dad. You know, he had. And when he did, it just it wasn't a good it wasn't it wasn't good. You know, and so he, you know, he has, he's got feelings. He's harboring, you know, resentment and abandonment. You know, um, I've had to put him in therapy. You know, I've had to really try to just encourage him. I, you know, I have guilt gifted him to death, you know, because I feel like he is here um, and he was harmed because, you know, not no sooner than I went ahead and had him in that that following September, I lost my job the following April. 
And so, and then came this kind of whirlwind of poverty for us. Um, temp job after temp job after temp job after temp job. I'm a singer still, you know, I still took gigs. I still did plays. I took temp jobs where I could take them. And I tried my best to raise my kid. You know, we know what it's like to get the car repossessed. We know what it's like for the utilities to be cut off. And we know what it's like not to have enough food in the refrigerator. And that is the reality, um, you know, that he, he'd had for the majority of his childhood. I mean, I still try to give him the best childhood that I could, worked very hard to give him that but you know that is the truth you know he yeah I mean all of this hurt my baby all of this hurt my baby their lies their deceit their manipulation uh hurt my kid you know and he's 17 now he's almost 17 he's turning 17 next uh next month you know and I love him and I thank God for him but he he's had to endure some things that he should not have had to endure had they just done what I asked you know what I'm saying now I didn't learn until after I got into this movement that I could actually have more babies and since then have become pregnant three other times. And I terminated those pregnancies. Um, I wasn't with the, well, I was only with one of the persons that I had one of those abortions by. And that uh, was my ex-husband. Yeah. And it just, it didn't feel like it was going to be a good idea to bring a baby in the world with him. And I was right, you know, and, uh, and the other two times, yeah, I just, it w- they weren't good situations for me to move forward with the pregnancy. I wasn't working the other two times that I got pregnant, I was unemployed in between jobs. And so, you know, it's cool how people can say, you know, in theory, how folks, you know, you, you can expect somebody to help you and all this kind of stuff. But I'd already been enduring a situation where the father of my child was not ha- helping me. And I wasn't going to go through that again with another pregnancy. And so, yeah, so I didn't I didn't have those pregnancies. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, he's living and he's alive and he's smart and he is amazing. He's a advocate for reproductive justice he you know gives condoms out to his friends and make sure that they protect their bodies and he's amazing you know but um but we cannot divorce his right now from what he had to endure what he's been enduring he still does not have a good relationship with his father Mm -hmm. and he's almost a man you know and I, I won't fully know how that has impacted him until maybe he's a daddy you know, and a husband. And so, you know, I think that everybody's owed an apology uh, and and some type of reparations, if you will, around that. Not just me, not just my child, but his father, you know. And I think it has taken me maybe until two, three years ago to even think about, you know, the ways that, that, the, that this, you know, anti-choice foolishness impacts fathers, impacts the men who either decide or in many times mandate that the woman has the, the abortion. You know, like, how is it going to impact their lives um, as well? I mean, I had to put his dad on child support because, of course, he didn't want to take care of a child. He said he didn't want thinking the way that the child support system impacts black families, black fathers. You know, I mean, if I could do it all over again, uh, I would have had my abortion because that was the best. That was the best decision for my life in that moment. And all I would you know, all I could do was hope and pray that God would bless me with another baby. So, yeah. So that's it. That's my little story in a nutshell. The story Sharice shared is unfortunately a fairly common story at crisis pregnancy centers. So if you're not familiar with the phrase, crisis pregnancy centers are billed as alternatives to abortion clinics. They're spaces that may offer free pregnancy testing or ultrasounds, and they even advertise under abortion online or in phone books, but they do not offer abortion services. Rather, their goal is to dissuade women from getting an abortion. So as we heard from Sharice, they often end up bringing women in, having these kind of long counseling conversations, 
and providing them with some services and then always trying to convince them not to get an abortion. It's really hard to find statistics about crisis pregnancy centers because the ones that are provided uh, most often are provided by crisis pregnancy centers themselves. A very commonly cited statistic is provided by an anti-choice software company that provides a bunch of the client tracking software to crisis pregnancy centers. So that company says that over 2.6 million clients have visited crisis pregnancy centers between 2004 and 2016. And during that time, almost 100,000 people decided not to have an abortion after visiting the center. Obviously, I only share the statistic with the largest grain of salt because, of course, coming from a company that is anti-choice, they want to say that many, many people have come to these centers, they've provided tons of services, and they've helped lots of them decide not to have abortions. We heard the other side of that story from Sharice, what that experience was like, um, what impact it has, not only on the people who visit those places, but the children they may then have, the families that surround them, the communities that they're in. There's the ripple effect of that one conversation at that one place. That effect lasts a lifetime for so many people. So I will link to the article where I got those dubitable statistics in the show notes of this episode. I'm also going to share there um, a very comprehensive document from Narrow Pro-Choice America about crisis pregnancy centers that walks through um, the ways that they deceive and evade and confuse people seeking services and assistance with pregnancy and abortion. So I'll link to all of that in the show notes and you can find it there. After hearing Sharice's story of how she came to reproductive justice as a framework, I asked if she could share the story of the birth of Sister Reach and how this amazing organization came to be. So hear her tell that story next. So after that experience, I, I knew that I didn't want to go through it again, right? And I happened to be at a party and a friend of mine, uh, it was a mutual friend, and I overheard this woman at the party talking about what she did for a living. She helped women get like with sexual health things, contraception, abortion. I was like, oh, let me get, let me get her card, you know. And so I was like, excuse me, could I get your card? Can I just, you know, I might need to follow up with you. Should I do it kind of discreetly? And when I found out that I was pregnant for the second time, um, you know, I I called her and I was like, I can't go through what I went through last time. Where can I go? And so I remember she sent me, um, you know, to a, a health center in the, in the city um, and I was a little bit too far along at that time for um, emergency contraception because they actually gave me some, but it didn't work because <laughs> I was super pregnant, I guess. And so I, you know, I went ahead and scheduled an abortion procedure, but she told me where I could go. And then she was like, you know, you know, I run this organization called Black Women for Reproductive Justice. You know, you should you come volunteer. And so I volunteered. And then, you know, that was really cool. I was like, you know, the work you guys do is amazing, you know. Um, and then there was an opportunity to be on the board and she asked me to be on the board and I was like, okay, I'll, I've never done it before, but I'll try, you know? So I was on her board for a couple of years. Um, and then in the process of, you know, having, having, getting married and then getting an annulment, uh, and being pregnant, like, let me just end this pregnancy. Um, she was like, you know, I got a position that has just come up for a health educator you know, uh, and, and basically an organizer position as well. And, uh, she was like, would you be interested in it? You know, I was like, uh-huh, I will be interested. And so, um, I took her job 
And, you know, she taught me as a part of the job because I had to do sex education. She taught me about my body. And so she taught me how to chart my menstrual cycle. She taught me to under, how to understand fertility, ovulation, you know. Um, and I was like, so wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the, that the only difference between these abortions that I've had and what you're telling me right now is, is counting? And she was like, yes. I was like, okay. I'm going to say it again. Like, you mean if I could have just counted, like, there's even a time of the month where you cannot get pregnant? And she was like, yes. I was like, why don't we know this stuff? Like, why don't women know this stuff? You know, so that we can really, like, space our pregnancies, plan our children, um, and not just kind of, you know, oops, I got pregnant. We got to just, you know, did the time, got to do the crime. I mean, did the crime, got to do the time. You know, you lay in the bed, you make your bed, you got to lay in it. Da, 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 you know, all that foolishness, you know. You know, and she was like, I don't know, but, you know, but this is what I need you to teach, you know. And so she did. So I, that's what I did. I taught women in Chicago about their bodies, women who were coming for an abortion um, so that they wouldn't have to have another one unless they just needed one and they just wanted one. Um, you know, I taught women about their bodies. And so like that work really stuck, uh, with me. And so that was like, you know, between like 2005 and 2010, uh, 11. And, but in 2011, my mother called me and she was like, Hey, I'm ill and I need you to come home. And so that's really all she needed to say. And so I packed up my stuff. I gave my notice and I moved my, me and my son down here to Memphis. But when I got here, you know, I mean, after I realized, you know, like, what, okay, what I got to do, let me just figure out the way I need to help, you know, at home, you know, um, I had already started looking for work before I even got here. And I only could find like this kind of one place that was as close to reproductive justice, and that was Choices. Um, got an interview and everything. They didn't necessarily have like a director of education position available, um, but they had a health educator position available. And so, I mean, that's my wheelhouse. I took that job, but I went from making 50 grand a year to $12 an hour. And, um, that was a, that was a hit. <laughs> that was a real hit. Right. And, you know, I went from having my own crib in, in Memphis, excuse me, in Chicago to sleeping on my mama's couch and my son sleeping on her love seat, you know? Um, and for six months, that's how we, that's what, that's what we did, you know? Um, and in the midst of that, my mom, you know, I think my mother just realized like I was unhappy and I was like, mom, you know, like I, you know, I'm here to help. I'm totally here to help. I tried to do temp agencies. I tried to do all these kind of things. And I was like, damn, that's not my life anymore. You know, I don't want to do this, this kind of hand to mouth, you know, not sure when the next job is going to come or how long this one is going to last. And, you know, and I was like, mom, you know, I got to do some work that matters to me because I was doing work that mattered to me. And um, and she was like, well, I mean, why don't you do the work that you were doing in Chicago? You know, you can do the same thing down here. It's not like girls and women down here don't need that type of work, you know, need that type of help and stuff. She's like, you can do that. And I was like, yeah. And my grandmother, um, my grandmother was in town and she was like, well, baby, I'll help you. You know, you know, I started some nonprofits and my grandmother's a retired pastor. She's like, honey, I got a nonprofit in the state of Tennessee, honey. I can help you figure all that out, you know. And it totally became a family effort. I was like, OK. Granny was like, go write a business plan. Like it was just like, go, go write your name, you know. And so I looked online and, I, you know, I'm like, OK, business plan. I pulled a template out and I started filling it out. And trying to figure it out, I was like, what would I call? You know, I'll call this thing, but what do I want it to do? 
you know? And so I had an idea of what I wanted it to do, which was very similar to the work that I was doing. I mean, I was work, I was going in low income communities. You know, I was, I was working with women and girls about their bodies. I was going into the school system. I was teaching in the Chicago public school system around sex education. I was like, yeah, I need to be able to do all of that here, you know? And the other thing that I was doing because I was ordained is she had me organizing clergy, uh, around reproductive justice. And so I was like, hmm, got to have a faith piece because I'm in, the, in I'm in the South. This is the home Church of God in Christ. I used to be Church of God in Christ. And so I was like, okay, yeah, we need definitely figure out how to work with the church, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking about, like, who, who are my friends that live here? Like, who are the people who can help me? You know, just already kind of thinking it through. And um, it ended up being a family effort. Um, my stepfather paid the, the filing fee. My uncle made sure I had all of the bylaws and stuff. to get. I mean, everybody helped. Everybody helped. And it was so great. Um, one of my friends donated his services to create a logo for me, you know, and everything. And I was like thinking about what the name of this organization was going to be. And I was like, what is it that this organization will be doing? It will be reaching people. I, I, I was like my sister's keeper, but I knew that somebody had that. So I was like, maybe not. But um, but reaching sisters and I want, you know, sister reach, you know, like I definitely wanted to be the sister that was reaching out for other sisters and making sure that they had the information that they needed, the education that they they really deserve to have access to, um, even knowing how to use condoms, all of those things. Right. And so, you know, I moved here June, late June of 2011. I wrote my business plan over the summer. I filed that paperwork in September and Sister Reach was incorporated in October of 2011. And for the next year, I did a needs assessment, you know, and I just asked people like, what's missing? I knew I had a business plan, but I wanted to know what was missing, you know, you know, and what I heard more than not was that we needed policy, you know, that they needed to see black and brown women on the hill. They needed to see, you know, that, that there really wasn't a presence in that way. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to do some policy work. Clearly. All right. That's fine. We do policy work. Didn't really know fully how to do that. That wasn't my job at the organization, but I knew that, it, you know, but I had already talked to a legislator before I had already done a legislative visit before. And so I knew it couldn't be that difficult, you know? Um, and so I was like, okay, that's what we got to do, you know. And I also heard, you know, that, that there weren't necessarily, you know, especially black women speaking out on issues around abortion, those types of things. And so I was like, okay, great. Well, I'm very unapologetic about that because it's it's too connected to my story, right? Um, so I definitely want to be able to say that, you know, lift my voice around why abortion was important and uh, abortion access was, you know, was important, but also comp sex ed, you know, like, okay, you can reduce abortions as long as you got sex education you know but people don't think that way I guess and so yeah this this thing came to life you know I I called on friends who I thought might be interested in this work or might be able to invest in it in certain kinds of way to be on the board and um yeah and Sister Reach came to life and I think we got our first grant maybe in 2012 first grant was doing research very first grant was doing research asking black women how they felt about oral contraceptives over the counter um, and if they felt that oral contraceptives being available that, that way would be sterilization, you know, or had they been endured some type of sterilization practices before. Um, and, 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 and then it just seemed to grow and then and go from there. Right. And um, yeah. And then reproductive justice was in the state of Tennessee, you know, and that work is because we are here.
When Cherise says here that reproductive justice was in the state of Tennessee when Sister Reach was founded there, I really just want to underscore what that work is that Sister Reach is doing and that she's doing with and through Sister Reach. So Sister Reach offers free HIV testing and birth control options counseling at their offices. They offer interfaith education and mobilization. They work with clergy, laity, advocates, community members to do trainings about reproductive justice through a faith lens. They do a lot of research to support their policy and advocacy work. So things like voter education, and voter registration, also helping agencies and organizations do research projects about whether it be needs assessment or otherwise. They offer comprehensive sex education for youth and adults and have lobbied to improve sex education options in Memphis and Tennessee. They also do various arts, culture, community events. They even most recently launched services and programming for masculine of center folks seeking education and community as they develop their identities, you know, in a reproductive justice space. So Sister Reach does so much. And part of the fact that they do so much is because they're rooted in a reproductive justice framework. So I asked Sharice if she could share exactly what a reproductive justice framework is, what it means to her and the organization, and how that makes Sister Reach different than some of the reproductive rights organizations that many of you listening may be more familiar with. So reproductive justice, the intention is that it would be led by the people who are most affected, right? And so uh, in this instance, folks of color, um, a woman of color. So that was, that's, that's the kind of the rules of engagement, if you will, that anybody can do reproductive justice, that reproductive justice applies to your life, my life, my son's life, his dad's life. Um, but when we think about those who are most impacted, those who are most oppressed, then the ways in which black women who started this framework back in 94, and this is the 25 year anniversary of it this year, um, had that in mind that, uh, that the leadership you know, and, and the lived experiences of those most impacted would drive the work and the leadership, and that would be reflected in that leadership. And so, you know, tomorrow we do, I think, our fourth or fifth installment of our Reproductive Justice at the Intersection Awards, because the Reproductive Justice, though uh, the term was coined in 94, oh, we see Reproductive Justice since the beginning of time, women having bodily autonomy, self-determination, uh, you know, super, you know, so many examples in the Bible even about where we see where a woman's, you know, self-determination saved an, an entire nation. Uh, her bodily autonomy is something that she not only, you know, took control of, but it was honored by God, you know. And so, um, you know, so there are people who are doing the work. They may not call it reproductive justice. You know, is that's the, you know, that's the black feminist theory. That's the academic terminology for it. But it's so many people in this city, especially that are doing what I call reproductive justice work. And there's even a, an organization that kind of grew out of our organization. A sister who used to work for us has started an organization where she's working with team mothers and, uh, and, and women who are low income, who need doula services. Um, and, you know, so maternal health is like her focus. And so that part is reproductive, you know, to me is reproductive justice. She's definitely applying the framework in the way that she does her work. Um, I don't know if she fully calls herself a reproductive justice organization, but, you know, that is the way that she does her work. 
And then you've got now choices with the birthing center, right? And the fact that, you know, what they call the kind of operationalizing reproductive justice into the direct service realm, which is extremely important, you know, and that that leadership still is led by a black woman, you know, and um, as, a, as the provider there and that, that she is intentionally reaching for low income women who would never be able to afford a midwife. Uh, or doula services, or might not even know what that means or is. So, yeah, so we see reproductive justice actualized all over the city in, you know, Up the Vote 901, in uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, and, you know, it's actualized all over the city in, with the Turk Coalition that's working on, you know, uh, making sure the undocumented folks get justice. We see it actualized in so many different elements of our city, in our of our state, in our region. Uh, even if, like I said, even if folks aren't calling it that, you know, it is, that's what it is, you know, a person's right to have a child, not have a child, uh, to be, you know, supported with the necessary social supports and, and, and to be able to live in safe environments, you know, free from violence from individuals or the government, you know, free from all forms of reproductive oppression. And as and also the human right, uh, you know, to live free from, from shame and harm because of your religious preference or your sexual orientation. That's reproductive justice, right? And that encompasses all of the things. I just want to underscore here this last statement of Sharice's that reproductive justice encompasses all of these things and to really acknowledge and thank reproductive justice organizers and the reproductive justice framework for how much it's taught me about all of the things and causes and efforts that feminism should include and must include in order for there ever to be any sense of gender liberation in the world. And I think that something I've really learned from reproductive justice organizers, organizations, and theory is that anything that gender touches is a feminist issue. Anything that touches reproduction or social justice is a reproductive justice issue. And that that means that there is so much more to the work that must be done than just considering perhaps the things that I think are often traditionally associated with sort of liberal feminism or even a white feminism. So abortion access is so important and birth control options and sex education and all of these things are so important. But as Cherie says here, so is Black Lives Matter and so is childbirth education and so are voting rights and registration. All of these things are part of reproductive justice. From my perspective, all of them are an important part of feminism. And I think that the more we can think about all aspects of our lives as implicated in families and reproduction and gender, the better we'll be able to see how we can best serve communities and liberate ourselves and each other together. So I just kind of want to give that credit to the reproductive justice movement on its 25th anniversary for what I see as the profound impact it's had on feminism at large. And I'm so happy to have learned from it and to have learned from, as Sharice points out in the beginning of that, all of the women of color who lead that movement I think we also have a lot to learn from that centering of the experience of women of color and looking to them as leaders within feminism to make sure that the feminist movement does not continue to perpetrate exactly the same problems that it claims to be trying to solve. For me, learning from the reproductive justice framework has been one of the only ways that I've been able to grapple with uh, a lot of the harm that's been done in the name of feminism over time. And so I'm so thankful to that movement and its organizers and leaders for the work that they've done to really show what organizing around reproduction could be and how important it is for social justice to always be a part of our movements. 
When I interviewed Sharice over the summer, I happened to end up there a few days after a really big event. So she had been invited to speak before the Tennessee Senate Judiciary Committee concerning a um, quote unquote heartbeat bill that they were considering passing. And when she went to testify, she was given 10 minutes to speak. She got about five minutes into her time and she was cut off and told that she could no longer speak and that the things that she was saying, she couldn't say there. And this was a really big deal in Tennessee. And when I was there, Sharice was kind of in the middle of this like media storm that she'd been swept up in by the fact that she had been cut off and then threatened to be thrown out of the room where the meeting was being held. So because I was there in that moment, I asked Sharice if she could tell us about what happened and I'll let her explain the events of that day and kind of the effects of it on Sister Reach shortly after in her own work. So um, last Tuesday, I had an opportunity to speak before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Senate Bill 1236, which is um, on our side called the six week abortion ban. And um, basically it would outlaw abortion in the state of Tennessee if it passes uh, next legislative session, which is coming up in January. You know, I, I think it's important to lift up that these folks uh, attempted to police who would come and speak in the first place. So we had to submit outlines uh, about what our talking points would be about. So I tried to keep those as vague as possible. Um, but, you know, I think that I've been preparing for this for this test- testimony maybe the entire time I've been in this movement. Uh, because finally I would have an opportunity, an audience with just my voice to say what I feel like they had done how they had abandoned my baby and I. But of course, you know, I wasn't just representing myself, but I had an opportunity to speak before the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is predominantly white and male, uh, but definitely mostly conservative, most Republicans. And um, we were allotted 10 minutes to to give our testimony, and I was cut off at about five minutes, um, especially when I lifted up the fact that their political practices were uh, colonial, colonialist and, and supremacist. And they were like, oh, that's enough. You know, you've, you've, you've gone over your time, you know, and I hadn't gone over my time. What I had done was expose some things. I had already called their, you know, their the policies that had already been impacting people and, and exacerbating the health disparities that Tennesseans were facing. And, you know, as as unchristian, un-American uh, and harmful, you know, to people and that I represented more than just black women, but um, the, the thousands of Tennesseans whose voices were being fully ignored and that the state of Tennessee had abandoned us, um, not just around abortion care, but health care in general. The, 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 the fact that Tennessee had not, did not, will, will not expand Medicaid and make sure that folks can have affordable health care in a state that has very ill people across the state, across uh, all of these demographics. Um, the fact that they mandate abstinence-based education, though they know that it's a public health wrong. Uh, you know, the fact that they won't expand uh, the, the minimum wage to, to $15 in an, you know, an hour. Um, you know, that these are the, the immigration piece, you know, and destroying and dismantling families, uh, policing families the ways that the, in the ways that they have across the state. Um, these that these and other things have fully exacerbated why abortion rates are so high, because people are afraid to, to bring children into the world. People don't want to bring kids into this level of harm. You know, they have they've supported Blue Lives Matter bills against black bodies. 
you know, they have tried to push the fetal assault law. They have pushed the fetal assault law on vulnerable women who struggle with substance use disorder instead of making sure that they expand behavioral health clinics across the state. You know, it, it seems to be that, you know, that what we were at, what I was trying to ask for made sense, but because it wasn't packaged the way that they needed, they wanted to hear it because, you know, I was black and I was a woman and still uh, clearly uh, fully, not fully human to them. It was, it was easy for them to stand up and to disregard me, you know? And so the chair represent uh, state uh, Senator Mike bill asked them to leave, asked them to get up and retire to whatever room they were going to retire into. Um, and I was like, you know, I've not gone over my time. Not only did he do that, but he asked the Sergeant of arms to cut off my mic and remove me from the hearing room. Um, they attempted to do so. I resisted. He then asked for the sheriffs to come and to do the same thing. And my understanding from somebody else who was in the room was that Senator Kerry told them, you know, not to touch me. And so they didn't touch me. But the bottom line is that they still stayed in the room. And I guess as an as an attempt to intimidate me um, and to, you know, cause me fear. And, you know, and this is in a moment of Black Lives Matter where we're seeing black women, children, men die on you know we can't even say national tv just online you can be on facebook and see your cousin be shot up in the car you know you can be on facebook um you know and see a mother holding her child you know her door get kicked in and somebody shoot her dead i mean this is not the time to call police on black people and and so basically this is what he did but i didn't stop and so they you know they i I don't i'm sure that they weren't ready for it i haven't gotten any this is very unnormal for me not to get backlash from the anti-choice community what i did not anticipate was the outpour of love and support that i would get from the faith community across race even this morning a little old white lady in her had to be elderly woman had to at least be 70 75 years old they i was doing an interview the staff came and got me and they were like a lady brought you this money and said, keep doing the work that you were doing. She saw that you got cut off, you know, and, and she didn't think, you know, because it's on the news now. You know, we've made it to the news as well as all over the Internet. And um, and was like, keep doing what you're doing. Speak up louder next time too. you know, holler at them if you need to make them listen to you. You know, I thought that, you know, and, and but that but she represents a particular um, she represents a particular demographic that I don't think I realized Sister Reach had support from. Older white people, to me, automatically kind of fall in this conservative space. Well, shame on me, right, for thinking that, um, you know, that that everybody kind of in a vacuum was thinking the same way. Um, And that just, you know, but conservative Christians that are even black, like pastors, my own pastor was like, yes, yes, there we go. All right now, do your thing. You know, folks instant messaging me, direct messaging me, emails, calls. I mean, it has been nonstop uh, the outpour of support, but but especially from the church, that just that, you know I, I could cry because this isn't this isn't just about abortion. This isn't just about abortion rights. This isn't just about women's rights. This is about human rights. This is about our families' rights, our communities' rights, our ability to be self determining not only about our God but about our bodies. And to me, it was easy to dismiss me because they never fully humanized me since their ancestors brought us a me. Over the water, this 1619, this 2019, this is 400 years later. And this is America. What we saw on that video, that's America from their harm to my resistance. You know, um, this is America. And so, you know, I I definitely want 
black women to keep resisting. I want people to continue to resist these abortion bans because we know for sure that, you know, if they, if it happens, you know, black women in particular and black teens, uh, I can't even imagine. A future without abortion access in the United States is also a future that I don't want to imagine and that I know will very disproportionately impact different communities in the U.S. Whenever I end interviews for this podcast, I always ask guests if there's anything that they haven't said yet that they wanted to, or if there are any final words that they can share with listeners. And to be honest, often I get kind of a smile and a thank you and a, no, this was great. Awesome. We're finished. But when I asked Sharice this question, she thought for a moment and then shared something really powerful. So here are her parting words for all of us 50 Feminist States fans. I really want to say trust black women. You know, trust us to make the best decisions for ourselves, our families, and our communities. Trust that if folks invest in the very people that they think are uh, leeches, our hangers-on, then we'll see our whole country change. That all of this can change if we invest in ourselves. That we are far better a country together, working together to be healthy, working together to be sustainable than we are um, you know, trying to manipulate and control one another, you know, um, I really want white people to get, get it together. You know, I really want the the folks on the Tennessee state legislature and those who, and I recognize it's not every white person, but you know, these bad apples are destroying the batch, you know, it's making folks believe that we can't trust anymore. You know, um, there were white women who opened their doors and their, and, and their opportunities for sister reach to be where sister reach is even here in, in the city. You know, um, but I, I still can't say that I haven't experienced a lot of harm and 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 uh, from some of those same white women. You know, um, that's real. You know, and that doesn't even have to be. And that black and brown folks having an opportunity to fight for ourselves and to stand up for ourselves and to be empowered is not an affront to white people. You know, that I can totally be pro-black and not anti-white. I am all the way pro-black and I am, and I'm not anti-white, you know, I'm, I'm pro-people, I'm pro-human beings, you know, and I'm very, um, and I'm very proud of the people that I come from. I'm very proud of the continent of which my people came out of. Um, so I, I do, I think that we can, you know, I need love to come back into the conversation and compassion and mercy, you know, um, Sister Reach is about that. You know, we give in the community. We invest in people. We want to see people be better. We want to do better, uh, you know, and it begins with ourselves. We're not, we don't have any objective. I don't have any objective, uh, but to be the best me and support folks to be the best of them as we all can be. So that's all. I mean, you know, and I hope folks, you know, invest and in continue to invest in our work and support our work because it's really important. Uh, we're not just doing this for ourselves. But we're doing this for, for everyone. Thanks so much to Sharice for making time to talk with me for the 50 Feminist States podcast. You can support Sister Reach at sisterreach.org. I've linked to that in the show notes along with their Facebook and Twitter pages. I'd encourage you to follow them there to stay up to date on the work that they're doing in Tennessee. Just one more reminder that you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes to be automatically entered to win a 50 Feminist States prize pack at the end of the season. We love your feedback. So happy to hear what you're enjoying about the episodes and what you think of of season three so far. Next week, I'll be headed to Mississippi and Oklahoma. Until then, I'll see you on the road. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministdates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.